Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Christian Retirement Show. I am incredibly excited to share this week's episode with you because we have Todd Von Helms joining us to discuss his new book titled Before You Leave for College, Career, and Eternity. Before we get started, some background on Todd. Todd is a senior fellow at the King's College in New York City, a presidential scholar of Christianity and culture at Dallas Baptist University, and a senior fellow for the Center for Faith and Work Culture at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Todd has degrees from the University of Texas, Dallas Baptist University, Southwestern Seminary, Duke University, and Southern Methodist University. Needless to say, Todd may be the smartest guest we've had on the show to date. During our time together, we not only cover Todd's new book, which you can find on Amazon or his website, toddvonhelms.com, but we also discuss fantastic wisdom on how we can manage our money in a way which is smart for the future, but also glorifies God. I'm very excited to share this episode with you. So let's go ahead and roll the intro. Welcome to the Christian Retirement Show, where we discuss all things crucial to planning and investing for retirement from a Christian perspective. I'm your host and CFP professional, Eric Shrum. To learn more about working with me, you can visit shrumpw.com and click free portfolio review. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Christian Retirement Show. I am here with Todd Van Holmes, and I'm really excited to have you on, Todd. Welcome. Thanks, Eric. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. Of course, of course. And this podcast, you know, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, but, you know, it's really the goal is to have a great conversation and um, discuss the wisdom that's found in, in your book that you just released last year and also hear a little bit about your thoughts on money and what you've learned throughout the years. But I want to just start our conversation today and get a little bit of background about you, where you're from, how did you grow up and, and how did you come to faith? Yeah, I grew up in in Dallas, Texas, actually south of of Dallas, um, mm-hmm. in a more of a rural area, and it was a context in which God was never far away. It was a mm-hmm. form of cultural or nominal Christianity. Most people um, were Christians, attended church. Yeah. Uh, we would have prayer um, at our public school, sometimes in classes, certainly before and after ball games. Yeah. Oh, and you just and that's your world. And then when I went off to college at the University of Texas in Austin, you know, you have a a, a college with more, with probably five times plus more people Mm -hmm. than the town I grew up in. And it was eye opening for me. And it it certainly challenged my faith and the worldview uh, in which I grew up under or in. And Mm -hmm. it was the best thing in the world that could have, you know, happened to me. So uh, I'm married, been married for almost 23 years. I have uh, two boys. I have one in New York at, at NYU, and then I have a 12-year-old at home who wishes he was in New York at NYU. Uh, <laughs> but my wife's my best friend. We have both um, done our best to just honor God through our vocation. Yeah. Uh, she is a, a therapist. Uh, I joke and say I'm her best client <laughs> because I'm married to one. Uh, that's great. Uh, we're just trying to make the most of every day. You know, yeah. the psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Yeah. In it. And that's what we're trying to do. And so it's an honor to be on this podcast and to talk a little bit about, you know, my book and what I'm up to. And, and also just to hear more about what you're, you're doing. And I'm grateful mm-hmm. that you had this podcast and hopefully this conversation will enrich um, many of your listeners. Yeah, that's great. And I think it will. And your book is titled, before you leave for college, career, and eternity. And, you know, reading your book, how I, you know, again, you know, being an adult, I just so enjoyed reading this book and kind of the impression that I took away from it. What I personally found so valuable was this was a great reality check for believers and the obstacles that they're going to face 
in the world today. And I almost saw it as, you know, a very black and white statement of faith is this is what the Bible says. And this is what Christians believe. Um, why do you feel, why did you feel compelled in 2020? The book came out, right, Tom? Yes, absolutely. During COVID, no better time to release. Oh gosh. Well, why 2020? Why this book? Why now? Well, with my oldest son, you know, heading to college, I really wanted to finish it before he left, right? For yeah, college, yeah. I the book to my boys. And really, I wanted it to be something that would encourage them. I mean, much of the book came from conversations we've had over the years, but also my mm-hmm. own experience in college, as well as, um, you know, in graduate work and teaching and higher ed and being a chaplain and a headmaster, yeah. various roles in which I've worked a lot with teenagers and college students. And then, mm-hmm. you know, parents, you know, who are really just bigger kids. And so much of what I cover in the book are things that I wish I had learned along the way. And that I've had yeah. many people tell me, you know, we didn't cover that in church or youth group growing yeah. up and we certainly didn't get it in college. But once these once the um, things that were antithetical to the Bible and our faith came up, mm-hmm. we were kind of an ear caught in the headlights and we didn't know how to respond. And typically a lot of Christians will get red in the face and, you know, angry and not know how to respond. Um, yeah. or they'll, you know, they'll be silent or, yeah. you know, worse yet quote scripture out of context, which is a lot yes. of what I had done in college, just thinking mm-hmm. yeah, this Bible verse will change, you know, this person's heart and scripture doesn't return void. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, but oftentimes yeah. if you take it out of context, it can do more, more damage or harm than good, especially when we share that with people who've actually read the Bible, which is what happened with me in you know, a couple of classes at the University of Texas. <laughs> uh, but that professor that really challenged me to, to know what I believe and why I believe it, he wasn't trying to wreck or destroy my faith, but he said, look, yeah. if you're going to be a Christian and base your life on what you believe to be the inspired words of God, you need to know what that book says. And if you're yeah. going to be an atheist, then I would need to know how you arrived at that belief system. Yeah. And because what you're reading, what you're thinking does determine your behavior and your actions, mm-hmm. uh, whatever age or stage you are in life. And so these are, these should not be secondary issues. These should be front burner questions that we all should deal with. And C.S. Yeah. Lewis, the great Oxford professor once said that we can't wholeheartedly believe something and embrace it as truth unless we first doubted it. So yeah. what the book does, at least what I hope uh, it will do, is invite the conversations that people mm-hmm. know it's okay to not be okay, that yeah. you've got questions that many others have as well. Don't be shy. Mm-hmm. Know that you can ask anything. Nothing is off limits. As a parent, as someone who's worked with youth, um, you know, your coworker, you know, on a ball game, you know, in, in sports, you know, that you're available to just be a sounding board, especially mm-hmm. for young people as they're being bombarded and indoctrinated with things that are just bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but how do you think through a lot of these cultural issues and how can you respond in an intelligent, thoughtful, winsome way? Mm-hmm. And hopefully as Christians, what people will hear is the truth, which mm-hmm. really will set them free. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Yeah. No one can the Father except through me. But when he was asked, you know, what is truth? You know, in John 8, 32, he says, the truth will set you free. And what we're seeing in culture is a is restrictions or censorship on yeah. freedom of speech, freedom of yeah. religion. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but I think the book invites these challenging questions. We deal mm-hmm. with topics that are seldom addressed, and yet they're biblical. Jesus hit them head on. Yeah. And as Christians, we need to work through these things. I love that. And I, I think this is such an honest book and it allows the room to say, let's doubt and let's answer those doubts. Do you think that we take a little bit as Christians, not enough of an intellectual approach to reading scripture and taking things in context as opposed to the pastor says on Sunday and and maybe it's right. not exactly as you know sound as as we think. Absolutely. A lot of times we parrot what we've learned or heard along the way without actually reading the Bible in context. Yeah. Jesus said we're to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the part that's often neglected in the Christian life is loving God with our mind, which yeah. is an act of worship. And yeah. When you're dealing with, you know, the academy with, you know, colleges and and grad schools and beyond and just out there in the private sector, you know, a lot of times people think the Bible is archaic, it's irrelevant, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Christians are absent-minded or they're anti-intellectual. And sadly, those caricatures are often true. And so what I have found, thankfully, along my journey are people who really have and do love the Lord with all their mind. 
And they do things with such excellence in their respective vocations that people look at that and they can't deny that it's excellent. And then they find out that they're really doing this for the Lord and his glory, not their own selfish gain or materialistic power, whatever it may be, but they'll see that Jesus really is their treasure. And they see yeah. it as their stewards of what God has allowed them to achieve. Yeah. And that's something I think we all should aspire to do. And yet that we all struggle with. No know? doubt. And you but mentioned, holy, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, son. Well, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity of the world, right? Um, yeah. You can shift this around. You say some say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> some say, uh, some say sex, money, and power. Yeah. Ellie, they all go together, don't they? Yeah. And one can lead to the next and it's a slippery slope. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that in our culture, especially today, sex, money, power is a driving force um, of motivation. Uh, And this is what our kids, grandkids are facing. You know, heck, it's what we face when we turn on the TV or go to a movie, but it's supercharged for our kids and grandkids heading to college. You said you've got a son heading to NYU. A lot of this book and, and the intention behind it was to prepare, you know, this next generation with solid truth. Can you give some examples of, or an example of kind of challenges that college students are going to face today when they head out into the world? Used to many of the conversations or things that I address in the book were confined kind of to the academy, to seminaries, or religious studies departments. And yet because of social media um, and the popularity of books written by, um, you know, atheists, new atheists, um, Mm -hmm, both skeptical mm -hmm. about the faith, about the Bible, it's become more accessible at the high school and even middle school level. And so because of that, I think it's more, it's even more important than ever for Christian parents and leaders who work with youth to go ahead and expose them almost a form of intellectual or spiritual inoculation Mm -hmm. to the challenges to the Bible and to the faith. Because if we're willing to go wherever the evidence leads us, knowing that all truth is God's truth, that there are great biblical answers to the many questions that are out there in our culture. And sometimes yeah. parents tend to shelter. Um, my Both of my boys are products of private schooling with the Christian mm-hmm. mission, mm-hmm. but yet we were always striving to be in the world, right? Yeah. In yeah. secular music, I mean, exposing them to things that you know, if this is the arena of redemption in which God has placed us, if we don't understand the soil in which the seeds of truth, seeds of the gospel will be planted, uh, then we'll be, it'll be problematic. And I think a lot of times that's what Christians struggle with when they leave that bubble of a Christian youth group, home, college, whatever that village, I mean, excuse me, high school, whatever that village was for them, when they're now around people who don't share the same values or belief system or worldview, they don't know how to relate to them. And therefore, yeah. Christians tend to fit the caricatures, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it's terrible. And I was guilty yeah. of that myself. And so, with our boys, you know, I, we really strive. I mean, I think it was D.L. Moody, the Chicago, you know, the evangelist, that said we should have the newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other. That yeah. was decades ago. But I think you know, be careful of what you expose yourself and your kids to. But mm-hmm. You need to know the basics because oftentimes the conversation starter that can hopefully lead to spiritual things will start with, you know, a secular book or movie or thing that's out there. And so just to Mm -hmm. have a basic awareness of those things, you'd be surprised how God can show up and use those conversations to then establish a form of relationship or trust to where people say that, you know, you're not much different than us. I mean, we we have this perception of Christians as being holier than thou and judgmental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes that can be true. But why don't we strive to dispel that to just say, hey, we're just like you and anyone else. We have struggles. We're transparent, but God's grace is sufficient and he forgives us and we're not perfect. And we are among sinners in a fallen world. And when people who aren't Christians hear that and see that lived out, Christianity becomes more compelling. Yeah, no doubt. And I love one of your chapters in the book is the first one. It's the one that I've enjoyed the most, I think, because I had questions and and guys, the read the book, but the first chapter talks about the legitimacy of scripture. And, uh, you know, Todd shares a story and maybe, maybe you can share a little bit of that, but about taking scripture out of context regarding Paul and uh, you got called on it. And, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, I became a believer in college and had not 
didn't know the Bible, you know, had a heart change and knew Christianity to be true in my heart, but then the mind had to catch up. And a lot of um, the stumbling blocks for me as I was exploring and learning more was this legitimacy of scripture and you know, how did the Bible come together? And I think you're right that you know, there's a lot of very smart people out there that are major voices in the world. You talk about the atheism movement in that first chapter. You talk about the new atheists, mm-hmm. Sam Harris, you know, mm-hmm. very, very smart neuroscience, I believe, mm-hmm. um, that he practices. What can we do to, I, I love that, inoculate ourselves as parents, as leaders against some of these people who are speaking into our kids' lives? Well, I think it's best not to just take the secondhand information, but actually read what those skeptical about the faith, be it atheists yeah. or agnostics or whoever, read what they're reading, get to yeah. know have a legitimate, thoughtful, serious conversations and just see how they arrived at their belief system. Because even the atheist has a belief system. And for the new atheists that want to eradicate the world of religion, I think what some are finding, even Richard Dawkins, who's been one of the chief proponents of the new atheism, is he's Mm -hmm. now saying, wow, let's back this up a minute. We're realizing that when we create a void to remove religion, the alternative of what will fill that void could be much worse. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our culture and especially on our college campuses and the different forms Mm -hmm. of inoculation, because let's face it, when you look at the U S constitution, the bill of rights, I mean, this, the whole separation of church and state uh, that Congress shall, you know, make no law to establish uh, a religion or interfere with the free exercise thereof. Mm -hmm. uh, That was really designed to protect the church, but also the state. And the irony is you see sometimes those in power, uh, it's just, it's a natural outpouring of what they believe and what the majority believes is also, is oftentimes forced upon those not in power. Yeah. And so, but, but yet with religious freedom that the Bible is, you know, espouses, it gives even the atheist that freedom of voice into, to not believe in God. And so yeah. if we eliminate that, which is what's happening on the cultural level, city councils, college campuses, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then what's happening is even those that are outspoken against religion who don't believe in God or, or like people who do, mm-hmm. they're going to be silenced as well. Yeah. And so I think what people are realizing is the way things have been set up is actually, it is completely paramount to the freedoms that we all enjoy. And we need to pay attention because yeah. a lot of what's happening, um, it was more so on college campuses, but now it's in, you know, in the culture and in the media every day mm-hmm. was, you know, these socialism, right? Uh, Call it neo-Marxism, whatever you want. But I remember reading a quote by Ronald Reagan, who said, uh, you know, a communist, a communist reads Karl Marx, but an anti-communist understands Marx and the implications of his ideology. Right. And the reality is socialism is, um, it's irreconcilable with Christianity. It doesn't work. When we talk about this redistribution that it promises, it often leads to repression and increasing crime, um, censorship, and a plethora yep. of other problems. Yep. In the uh, you know in the 20th century alone, over 100 million deaths mm-hmm. under these communist um, regimes. And if you look at Karl Marx, just the man and his belief system. There's a quote I'll read to you, which is really kind of haunting, but he said, my soul wants true to God Mm -hmm. is chosen for hell. And there's actually a book out called The Devil and Karl Marx by a guy named Mm -hmm. Paul Kinger. Mm -hmm. And he actually talks about how Marx was not just an atheist, but he was really anti-God, even to the point that in his poetry, there's a lot of weird allusions to the devil. Mm -hmm. It was almost like he sold his soul to the devil And he was really determined not just to let people keep their faith in a private way, but he wanted to destroy it. He wanted to destroy, you know, those systems of of government that stood upon biblical principles. Mm -hmm. And the Communist Manifesto that Marx, along with Frederick Engels, you know, comprised in, in 1948, they really trying to solve the human problem by solving it in an economic way, the the economic problem, right? Yeah. And the problem is the vacuum in our hearts and in our culture can't be remedied uh, just with materialistic redistribution or gain because yes. we know that as Christians, the ultimate human problem is that we inherited our sin. Yeah. <laughs> you just, yeah. you just hang out with kids, you know, have your own one day 
And it doesn't take long to realize we're prone to sin. It's just our nature. Yeah. And, you know, in the, the Old Testament, um, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 says that God has set eternity in our hearts. And so there's this insatiable longing for something more, something that this world can't satisfy. Yeah. C.S. Lewis, he said, and because I find in this world something in which nothing can satisfy, I know that I was made for another world. And so a lot of what we're seeing in the culture is really going up against what the Bible has taught and what Christians have lived. The church yeah. has held for centuries mm-hmm. and it worked. And, and quite frankly, these things are, it, it's a dangerous time. Yeah. But I think it's also a time for great hope because, you know, Jesus says to be light and where is light most evident? In the in dark. dark. So yeah. as it gets darker, I think we have an opportunity to shine more brightly with the truth of God's word. Yeah. So that's why we need to know it. That's why we need to study it. We need to savor it. We need to teach it to our children and we need to live that out because I think when we, it's not just the things that we can hear and repeat, but mm-hmm. that we're living out. That's when, as I mentioned before, Christianity becomes more attractive, more, yeah. more compelling. Yeah, that's great. And I'm, I'm going to take a little tangent here, but you sure. talk about Dawkins in the book. You talk about uh, Sam Harris. And I think your comments about Marx are the same. And, you know, I was listening to Dawkins do an interview and, you know, he doesn't have that great of an argument against God. It's It seems like he's there's something deeper set there, right? There is a yeah. um, there is a deeply rooted prejudice against yeah against the faith. And whereas you cite people like Bart Ehrman mm-hmm. at UNC, I know he's a popular Christian, you yep. know, atheist, but the Christian, we like to use him a lot because he takes an intellectually, somewhat intellectually honest approach, at least, which I appreciate. And I think as Christians, we can appreciate because, you know, we believe we know the truth is in Christ. And if we mm-hmm. keep digging for the truth, it's going to come up there. But I think that's very interesting that tying that to the the Marxism and kind of that deeply rooted yeah atheism well, there. Yeah, there's a, it's there's an interesting correlation between some of the leading and most outspoken atheists um, who, you know, really have it out for Christianity. It's like they're angry at the God they say they don't believe in, but the problem is they were raised in, quote unquote, a Christian home. Yeah. But unfortunately, in many cases, it was an abusive relationship. People were yeah. twisting the scriptures or using it for their own gain. And yeah. it wasn't the biblical version of, of, of God or of Christ. And so the rebellion, um, what motivates many to be so outspoken is they're, they're trying to rail against, you know, just these negative non-biblical forms of Christianity. And if you get to know them and hear their stories and the pain that was inflicted about the pain that was inflicted, it makes it understandable and you can justify the way they're acting or what they're saying. But again, when you really encounter the God of the Bible, the author of the Bible, and you realize how much he loves us and the fact that he died for us, it's, it's really, it's almost too good to be true because it is true. You know, other religions point to the truth, but Jesus said, I am the truth. And he's the only one to claim that and then back it up. And many people, as you actually read the scriptures, what you find, especially in the gospels, the biographies of Jesus, you find that, you know, Jesus is one who met people where exactly where they were. He was hanging out with people that other people didn't want to hang out with, or they thought they didn't. Uh, And he really, and he really listened. And I think that by understanding the way in which he lived and just familiarizing ourselves with the scriptures, I think that we will learn, we will learn to do that as well and hopefully be able to dispel those negative perceptions of Christianity again, that I, that I think are justified because I had to base my life or my faith in God or the Bible based on the experiences of those I've met who really had a terrible experiences. You know, I don't know if I would be able to believe in God either. Yeah. Yeah. I would have a harder time, let's say. And I know it's yeah. only, you know, the Lord through the Holy Spirit can quicken our minds and help us to understand the truth. But it's it's more complex than just simply saying, oh, you don't, you don't believe in God, because some of the people have actually lived in, grown up in Christian environments or versions of it. And, and it is the case with many of, I mean, back to the Marx quote, he says, my soul wants true to God is now chosen to, for hell. Um, yeah. Frederick Nietzsche, you know, oftentimes he, you know, had a father and grandfather who were Lutheran ministers. And yet something happened along the way to the point where, you know, he <laughs> proclaimed that God is dead. And then he spent the rest of his life, you know, railing against kind of his upbringing, uh, his religious yeah. upbringing. And you, you see this with Thomas Huxley. You see it with uh, Bart Ehrman even, you know, was, yeah. I was a fundamentalist Christian. Yeah. And 
once I was able to get away from that, it was liberating. Richard yeah. Dawkins says that, you know, I think it's liberating to give up God. Uh, and for many of these people, temporarily, that may be true. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about the fact that we're made for eternity and there's life beyond the grave and we face our own mortality, wow, it, then what? Then yeah. where's the hope? And if there is nothing beyond the grave, why does any of it matter? Yeah. You know, we all want, there's a universal longing for, some, for, for something beyond the grave. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that part of the book. And I think it brought so much empathy to me as a reader and, and saying, you know, a lot of these people that we hold up as pillars of against the faith are have probably very understandable reasons on on why they got there and their backgrounds or tragedies that's happened in their lives. And yeah. um, I really, I really enjoyed, enjoyed that part of the book. And the book goes into prayer, goes into a lot of great topics, but one that I was somewhat surprised, but very happy to, to see was, was a chapter in the book. Cause I don't think we talk, you know, afraid to talk about this type of topic because it can be seen as mystic or, you know, kind of strange, but you found it important enough to include a chapter on the spiritual realm and the devil. Yeah. How come? Why? Well, it's interesting. We hear sermons, um, a lot of sermons about, you know, the importance of God's word, the family, discipleship. Yeah. Yet we never hear or seldom hear one about the enemy who opposes them all. And if you just, again, just read the scriptures, just read the gospels and look at how Jesus encounters the demonic, Mm -hmm. right? And it goes on in the Old Testament and just in the history of the church. And this isn't just some figment of the imagination of these people. I mean, it's true. It's real. And I actually heard something recently, and I can't remember the priest's name, but this is a guy in the Catholic church. They actually still have trained exorcists because of pastoral of some of the things that people are encountering mm-hmm. encountering today. And of course there's mental illness, drug abuse, sure. combination of the two, you know, some people mm-hmm. are just a little bit off. Uh, but then there is actually something that is beyond what we would label as just bad. We're all yeah. sinful, prone to, to be selfish and whatever, but then there's a, sure. a form of evil that really is a supernatural evil. And what this priest was saying when someone, a fellow priest that had gone to seminary with him, he said, he looked at the guy knowing that he, was in, you know, in training to be an exorcist. And he said to him, he said, so you, you really think there's this actual cosmic force of evil? There's this actual devil? And, you know, and why would you believe that? Mm-hmm. And he just looked at him very sternly. And, and he just said, when the devil's in the room with you, you will know it. Mm. And it just gave the guy chills because later, haunting. later in life, this guy did, this other guy did encounter what, what was he only can label as the demonic mm-hmm. and he goes back and he said, now I know what you mean. And I think as Christians, you know, there's so much in the culture and Hollywood about angels and it's makes us feel yeah. good. And many of us, uh, you talk to most people, you know, have you ever had a, a supernatural encounter? Maybe it was an angel you don't know, but it was something beyond the norm and it was good mm-hmm. and someone was mm-hmm. rescued or whatever. And most people have those stories or, you know, they've heard them from well-meaning people who they trusted, right? They weren't just making this up for attention. Many were even reluctant to share what happened. And I actually give yeah. some examples in the book. Yeah. But then when you actually encounter this evil force or forces, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, you realize, okay, there's something else going on. And a mentor yeah. of mine, a guy named William Abraham, he's an Irish theologian. He was an atheist, went to Oxford and for him, in the town in which he grew up in Northern Ireland, there were some terrorist bombings. You know, they had all the tension with the Catholics and the Protestants. Mm-hmm. And, that. and when he discovered that some of the people, the, the, the people in his life that he just, you know, really revered and knew were kind, at least on the surface, were actually behind some of these terrorist bombings to kill other people. Uh-huh. He realized he saw a form of evil there that was beyond the norm. Someone that could just look you in the eye and smile and be kind. Yeah. And yet something very sinister behind it. And so yeah. for him, he said, it wasn't the odyssey. It wasn't the undeniable presence of evil in the world that pushed me away from God. He said, it's mm-hmm. actually the thing that drew me to God. Because once I could conceive of this supernatural evil and I could not deny it, even as an atheist, mm-hmm. yeah. I realized I'm halfway there to maybe yeah. the God of the Bible, this benevolent, all-powerful, all-loving God mm-hmm. that the scriptures talk about, um, who sent his son, who indwelled flesh among us to redeem this lost, broken world. So it's the evil and the sin that's there 
sure, it doesn't make sense. And many atheists mm-hmm. and others will say it's because of those things that I can't believe in an all-powerful loving God. But you, when you understand, again, you understand the scriptures, you understand the meta narrative of the gospel, yeah. then it all makes sense. And you realize, oh, that's why Jesus came. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why he came. And we have hope. And it's just beautiful because nothing else in the world makes sense. Nothing yeah. else will satisfy. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the popular Netflix documentaries out there right now are How to Make a Murderer, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, all and people are just enraptured in these things. But uh, I don't I think it's a statistic that maybe you cited it in your book, Todd. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but most people do believe in some sort of spiritual uh, realm. And you know, I think people coming across like these stories of just really terrible things that people have done and they can see, wow, there's something there that is, you know, maybe beyond uh, normal and what we experience. And, you know, in the face of kind of this fear that can kind of well up in us and this dread when thinking about demonic or spiritual things, uh, what's a healthy way for a believer to interact with, with that in light of, of our beliefs? I think you always go to scripture and the scriptures talks about, you know, testing the spirits. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen people in more charismatic churches or denominations who think they encountered something that was supernatural and maybe they did, Yeah. but the advice given or that they thought they received did mm-hmm. not align with scripture or wise biblical counsel. And so yeah. it caused them to think or do some things that contradicted the scriptures. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important. And I think to have that balance, to know that, I mean, on one hand in the scriptures, you see Peter who faced an enormous persecution in the early church. He was martyred for his faith in Rome yeah. and Nero. He was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be yeah. crucified the way in which his Lord was crucified. Yeah, incredible, and, right? And Peter says, look, the devil's a roaring lion waiting some, waiting to, you know, to devour, First Peter yeah. 5. But then on the other hand, you see the apostle Paul saying, which he would agree with Peter, but he also said that the, that the devil, it masquerades as an angel of light. Right. And if you go to third world countries or some of these cities that some would look at as, or parts of cities that are pretty dark spiritually, you can almost just mm-hmm. feel this presence of evil, maybe not be able to pinpoint what it is, but you know, people are into witchcraft and, you know, demonic things. Yeah. satanic worship or whatever the third world countries especially the missionaries that i've talked to they said look people don't need convincing in these types of areas that yes. there's, yeah. there's the world and that there is a supernatural evil yeah call it the roaring lion mm-hmm. but yet in america in places where materialistically we're more comfortable oftentimes yeah. that's more of the version that paul would describe as the de- deception of the the angel of light mm-hmm. that everything may appear to be good Right. I mean, I, you've probably known many people in your profession who there's nothing wrong with making money. In fact, I mean, gosh, take care of your family, plan for the future. Yeah. But that money is going to become your ultimate treasure. You'll never have enough. Mm-hmm. And how many people have you known? I mean, I've, I can, I've got a handful where their pursuit of wealth and sometimes the power that came with it, it mm-hmm. became the driving force in their life to where Christianity really did become nominal for them and they're yeah. gone all the time or they're just, they just can't have enough. I have one friend yeah. that told me it got to the point where it wasn't even about making more money. It was about winning the deal. Yeah. yeah. It was about winning <laughs> and just beating these people. You know? And it's, it's really something fascinating, worth watching some of the older crowd there. I wasn't really a kiss, the rock man kiss fan growing up, but there's sure. a, a documentary that just came out a couple of weeks ago. On yeah. AD. I saw that. And Gene Simmons, the lead singer, Guy never got drunk, didn't do drugs, but he said, man, the power and the money and the greed, mm-hmm. that was my drug. And I yeah. couldn't get enough. Mm-hmm. And you look at that, and I really think that the devil will use whatever you're most tempted by. And it might be success, maybe even in ministry. It's how big your church is, followers, how many people you baptize, think, things clearly that are great in and of themselves, mm-hmm. that aren't bad. But when you get manipulated into those things, it just leads to something else. And most of the people we've seen, you know, fall, whether it be a divorce, whether it be, you know, embezzlement of money for their corporation or their company mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. they didn't set out to do these things or for these things to happen. Yeah. But they were enticed and it, it, it just, it doesn't happen overnight. Tim Keller, the New York pastor for many yeah. years, very influential. I know one time he gave a sermon, uh, he was talking about adultery. 
And he says, you know, the adulterer doesn't wake up the next morning and say, whoa, you're not my wife. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it started at the water cooler or, or, you know, the company trip or wherever, but the devil will use these different things that is, in other words, whatever area of life you need to figure out what are those areas in which you may be most vulnerable. And I know we'll talk about this later, but for some, it is money. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be truly given to God. Yeah. And, and if you want to even segue into that, we can, because yeah. um, I think that, you know, there, there's a lot out there in our culture, even within the church, misconceptions about, about money. And there's yeah. a popular movement within progressive Christianity called, it's called the prosperity or health wealth gospel. Yes. And, and there, these are churches that have 35 and 40, 50,000 members on Sunday filling, you know, former basketball arenas. And yep. these people are, are, they're selling, you know, this, this false gospel that mm-hmm. if you just have enough faith and you just give enough money, then you're going to, you, you will be blessed with good health and you right. will be blessed with, with more resources. And yet when you look at the Bible, the history of the church, many of the missionaries and men and women who God used in extreme extraordinary ways for many of them, they were in poor health, many of yep. them their entire lives. And many of them were somewhat poor by the, the standards of the world monetarily. Yep. And yet yep. spiritually, their spiritual resources is what sustained them. And they knew that. Mm-hmm. And Jesus talks often about the danger, right? Yeah. Of, of, of the wealth. And it's not that having wealth is a bad thing, but it's what it can do to you. And in Matthew um, chapter six, verse 19, he talks about Jesus talks about storing your treasures in heaven. He said, you can Mm -hmm. store them here on earth where moth and rust can destroy or the eternal treasures, you know, stored in, in heaven in which that may not manifest it in, in a pat on the back or a growing bank account. But yet, Mm -hmm. you know, you truly did this just for the pleasure and glory and honor of God. And you can't put a price tag on that. And then as Jesus, you know, as he continues to talk um, in the, in the gospel of of Matthew and it it, it ends with verse 33, chapter six, verse 33, he basically says, you want to really know the secret to all this? He says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. All these things you think that will make you happy, which temporarily they might. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. sin, right? (laughs) Temporary pleasure, temporary gain but it's not lasting gain. But Jesus mm-hmm. says, you seek me first, my kingdom, my righteousness, you're going to have all that you need and it's yeah. not going to consume you. And when you, because when Jesus is your treasure, which is really what this is saying is he's basically saying, when I'm your treasure, you're going to realize how much you're treasured. And you're going to realize that everything you have is a gift mm-hmm. that I've given you and that you're to be a steward or a manager of that. And whether that's your car, your house, your resources, I mean, just look at the early church in the book of Acts. They shared all things together. No one was without, right? And I I know that can look very different in today's context, but, you know, the the truth of these concepts or these principles are, 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 they're they're not only priceless, but they're, they don't change. That is such wisdom with money and finances that you just shared there. And I want to ask, and I know a lot of the audience are either ambitious uh, business owners or entrepreneurs or retirees who, you know, have either done well for themselves or, you know, want to, you know, enjoy the lifestyle that they have worked hard to save for and maybe have fear around risk and investing and, you know, not having enough in retirement. What's a healthy way to say, you know, I want to be ambitious. I want to you know, succeed. I want to save and be diligent with my money and my investing without towing the line or crossing over to something that's sinful. How do we reconcile that as believers? Again, I think you, Jesus has to be your treasure. Uh, You know, uh, all good and perfect things come from our father above. And we are just, we are merely managers of, and stewards of these resources. And it's not just the, the, the money or the materialistic things, but I think the most precious commodity or the, the most valuable asset or thing that we have in our daily lives is time. Yeah. Right? Is there anything more precious than time? I mean, all the money in the world can't buy you more time. When no. your child is stricken with cancer and the chemo and radiation just really won't suffice and they're going to die and you know it, or they, and then they do, you realize that all the money in the world couldn't change or fix that. Right. Yeah. So 
in, in time, just in our own lives. I mean, in America today, the life expectancy is around 78.74 years. Mm-hmm. So for Eric, for you and I, it's halfway over maybe if we live yeah. to be that old. Yeah. But in the book of James, the Lord's brother in chapter four says that life's a vapor or a myth. Yeah. It's here yeah. and it's gone. And he also talks about it in that chapter four. He says, look, you know, he's, he's saying to his audience in context, as many of them were kind of neglecting the fact that, okay, the risen Lord, the Lord rose, he, he ascended, he's coming back, life's a vapor, it's a mist, and you guys are mm-hmm. getting caught up. And he says this, he says, what about you who's saying tomorrow we're going to go to this city and that city yes. to make money? Well, we have to live, right? We're to toil the land, it's work, it's our vocation, it's good for us, the devil loves idle hands. But I think what he's getting at there is that don't let that consume you to the point that you're neglecting your first love, being the Lord, being his in, in his word, growing in yeah. your faith, but also leading those in your life in the faith as well. Um, if you're married to, to lead your, your spouse, if you've got kids um, to lead them in the faith, you know, in the faith and to, to mm-hmm. know and love and cherish and fear God and his word. Uh, but to be, um, be a mentor, right? Yeah. That yeah. you, Jesus spent three and a half years with these 12 guys, these ordinary people and others just to, to spend time with them, to get to know them and to do life with them. And I think when we look at the great commission, the last mm-hmm. thing Jesus said, but you know, said before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, he says, look, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. Yeah. So I think we, what you and I have to ask ourselves in whatever context we find ourselves daily and then within our concentric circles of influence, mm-hmm. are we really making disciples? Yeah. Are we loving people well? Are we loving people well who don't know Christ? Yeah. Are we modeling what it looks like to, to really follow Christ and yeah. to be transparent and to be humble and to let God lead us? And so that when people see these resources we've been blessed with, whether that's, uh, you know, degrees on the wall of our office or our home or the cars we drive or the vacations we take or whatever it may be that people can say, oh, well, they were successful and they did this and they did that. But the reality is it was all grace. I mean, we had no control over the family in which we were born into. Many things in life we have no control over, but yet back to this country and the liberties that we enjoy, I mean, thank God that we do have the freedom to pursue whatever we you know, is, is on our hearts, whatever we thought God's put on our, our, our minds that we yeah. can do that. And, and as Christians to do it, not just for the grade, not just for the paycheck or the raise or the bonuses or the things that the money can buy, but we do these things as unto the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, first, first Corinthians 10 31, you know, Paul says, you know, whatever you do, eat, drink, travel, whatever <laughs> it may be, do it all for the glory of God. And I think when it comes to our finances, our resources is that, we are, we are approaching these things in a way as which is how, what will it look like to trust God in this situation and what will it look like to honor God with what he has given? That's a challenge, you know, just the basic tithe, you know, whatever that is for you, that's a challenge. But I think the key is that you are tithing, that you are giving back. You can get legalistic real fast either way to say it's this percentage or that percentage. And there's always someone who's given more or whatever, but it really is the motive of the heart. Yeah. And he's saying, what's on your yes. Why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah, I love that. I love that going from, there's a lot of what should I do Yeah. as opposed to, well, how is my heart? And there's a lot of frameworks in the Bible. There's not a lot of explicit direction in the Bible. Right. And yes. um, I, that is intentional. And I think that's very, very wise. Um, Todd, I could talk to you all day, but yeah. I want to respect your time. Thank you. So let me ask you two questions. Yes. And then I will maybe run through two or three rapid kind of fun one word answers to sure. round us out. One is real quick. What's just one profound or impactful financial principle you've learned over the years that's that served you well that you could share? I would say to hold on to all of it loosely, mm-hmm. to know that everything we really have or earn is really a gift from God. We didn't come into this world with anything and we're not going to take anything with us. Yeah. Though we're to be good stewards, I think we also need to just have an eye on eternity to realize, as Jesus said in Matthew six, is that, you know, to store those treasures in heaven because that is what is eternal. And so, you know, and, and that legacy won't just be the name on a building or a degree on a wall or, but it's going to be the way in which we impacted other people for Christ and that we invest yeah. in their lives. And sometimes it will be with those resources God's given us to help them 
to follow God and pursue the dreams of things that God's put before them, whether it's helping someone, you know, pay the tuition of, you know, a kid in college who couldn't afford to go or helping someone in seminary to help them make ends meet because I've been there and that was a tough time. I would just say that, you know, to just, to hold on to it loosely, devalue it and be a good steward, but just know that really it's what we do for Christ. That's going to last. It's those treasures. That's great. Great. And your book, Before You Leave, it's a great book for kids heading out to college, to out in the world for the first time. Uh, What's something real quick that you want maybe a parent, grandparent to do or understand about the world that their kid is facing today? And other than what can they do to help their kid face the world, which is by Before You Leave by Todd Van Helms. That's a great uh, resource there. But what else would you suggest? No, thank you. You know, it's interesting. I've had many grandparents buy this book and read it themselves and then give it to their kids and the grandkids. Their own children weren't going to church anymore for whatever reason, even though they grew up in the church or for the grandkids going off to college. I've had, you know, senior adults, uh, nursing homes, as well as at churches, Sunday school classes, read the book. And then I've come and spoken to those classes. I've preached Mm -hmm. in churches to the entire church. I've talked to high school you know, graduates as they're getting ready to go into college. And so I would say it really is a book for all ages. And I would suggest, you know, read it yourself because much of what I share are things that I did not learn until I was older in college on. And therefore, as I talked to many other people, even those in vocational ministry said, I didn't learn those things either. Would you write about it? <laughs> so you got I can a- attest to that. I I mean it was such yeah. a good read for me to solidify yeah, what does this actually mean? Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. That is what, what this means. So Yeah, no, thank you. And I've, you know, had seasoned, you know, Christians, uh, you know, that have followed the Lord for decades that have said, Wow, I just had never heard that before, or thought about that before. And even the chapter on prayer just really made yeah. me think of it in a different way. Yeah. And and that and that's the goal. I just want people to think, to think more critically, to hopefully get into the word of God themselves. I mean, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and and with this book, I it's there's nothing more important or that's been more encouraging to me is to know that that God's used it to encourage people in their faith to want to pray more, yeah. to be more intentional about their walk with God, about being in God's word. And I give a lot of practical advice there too. So, um, and I'd love your feedback. Um, sure. I, yeah. I, anybody that you read it and, you know, you can get a hold of me through, through Eric or I have a website. It's just toddvonhelms.com. It's T-O-D-V-O-N-H-L-M-S.com. And Perfect. there's info about the book and you can shoot me an email and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Yeah, do that, please. Everyone listening. Uh, what else is do you have going on? Any future projects right now? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually expanding the chapter on prayer into a book on prayer. Oh, wow. Because I just, I, I know that there's a lot of books out there on prayer and why do we need another? But it's just something that I think all of us really struggle with. Yes. Even though we may have been Christians for many, many years, I still struggle with my prayer life. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great British um, pastor, theologian in the 19th century said that it should be the, the, the duty, the obligation, the joy of, of each person every morning to seek the face of God before yeah. seeking the face of anyone else, just to start mm-hmm. your day off with God, just giving thanks for sleep and your health and the, the, the opportunity to live and serve God that day. And, and a lot of us don't do that. And I don't do yeah. that because I just get bombarded with my calendar or my iPhone or emails and text. And, you know, rather than just pausing and just saying thanks to God and God guard my thoughts and my words today and that. And so I'm, I'm going to have this book on prayer, hopefully out in the next six to nine months. And really I've been going all over the country speaking to young people, you know, Mm. sadly, college campuses, those institutions are having more impact and influence and unfortunately negative influence on the next generation of leaders. So much of us, so much of what we tried to instill with them as parents and as educators, uh, it's just completely being challenged and destroyed on many yeah. of these college campuses and many places that were founded upon Judeo-Christian values that that has just really gone out the window. You know, yeah. I mean, all the yeah. Ivy League schools were started, most of them to train men for the ministry. And now right. there's really a divinity school attached to them. But they are the places now that are... <laughs> you know, producing people and in, in ideologies that that really want to destroy their heritage. Yeah. Their foundation. Even the divinity schools totally. at these places are, yeah. are teaching these things. You can be an atheist and go to divinity school now. I mean, I went to Duke Divinity School. 
And I, and I can assure you, I mean, thank God I'm still a Christian. I still believe yeah. the Bible, but <laughs> I had a lot of friends that they didn't believe that God's words inspired. They no yeah. longer believed in some of the, the non-negotiable principles of the faith of there was right. a resurrection that Jesus mm-hmm. will return one day. And that, and that that's actually going on in divinity schools and in seminaries today. And that's, that's scary, but, but more alarming is what's happening uh, just with in the general populace on college campuses and the things that they're being bombarded with. And many of these students don't know how to respond, you know, yeah. and they go back to the well-meaning people in their lives, sometimes parents, grandparents, and they'll hear one of several things, which was the case for me. It's either, you know, don't listen to those people because they don't believe in the author of the Bible um, or they're, you know, you're wasting your time to get caught up in those different, you know, conversations, which they're unavoidable. Right. Yeah. And lastly, and probably most problematic is when someone says, well, I really don't know. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So yeah. then for these young people, they're looking up to these professors who know the material, they hold the students grades, mm-hmm. maybe they're their advisor or they, the chair of the department or the degree plan they're in their major and they don't want to be belittled in class by asking questions or speaking out. And, and, and then, so used to the problem was the professors, but now you're seeing the student body, how they're being empowered to be really just hateful and mean yeah. um, to people that hold traditional values and those that are Christians. And, and I have spoken recently at Duke University, NC State, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, I mean, I'll, I've been all over the country and that's my goal is to just wherever God wants me to go to just um, help people to think critically, to ask questions, to, again, let's have healthy debate and dialogue. Yeah. Let's try to, let's learn how to agree to disagree, mm-hmm. even about the most basic or fundamental things, but without demonizing and villain and, you know, uh, demonizing one another. How can yeah. we do that? What does it look like to truly have civil discourse? Yeah. Right. Where the free exchange yeah. of ideas, which used to be the norm and the goal <laughs> of is no longer prevalent. It's no longer no. mind boggling. But I, I want listeners to know how problematic this is, how dangerous yeah. this is, how important it is to pay attention, to encourage those who are working with young people who are going into education. But just those that are going into the private sector, even as Christians, is just to pray for one another. Mm-hmm. to let let people know you're not alone that yeah. despite what the media you know may tell you you really are not a minority as a christian but that yet yeah. that there are so many people out there but most importantly that god is with you yeah that god can do more in seconds than we can do in years we just need to be in his word and we need to be in prayer and we need to be in fellowship yeah. and that's they're the last thing i'd like to end with is just to say you need sure. to have accountability in your life you can't have enough and especially mm-hmm. for young people be a mentor, have yeah. a mentor, and just be bold. You know, be be prepared in season and out of season. You know, be bold, but also have gentleness and respect. So I love that. I think that's a great way to to end our time and default to boldness. And uh, as a believer, is a great thing. So, Todd, thank you so much for spending time with us. It was fantastic. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Eric. This was awesome. The content provided is for general information, educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular strategy, investment product, or investing advice of any kind. Content is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or legal opinion. Please consult a financial professional for your specific situation. Investing involves risk, including the loss of the entire principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views and opinions expressed here are of the author and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Spy Wealth Management, LLC, and its affiliates. Investment advisory services offered through Spire Wealth Management, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Securities offered through an affiliate Spire Securities, LLC, a registered broker, dealer, and member of FINRA and SIPC.